Today on the EdTech Lens, author Catherine Berger Kay joins me. She has authored several books, including the famed The Complete Guide to Service Learning. Her work includes collaborations with notable figures such as Philippe Cousteau. Together, they co-authored two books, Going Blue and Make a Splash. We met a few months ago when she came to my school to conduct a weekend workshop. One of my favorite things about it was how the workshop not only explored service learning, but thinking routines, strategies, and resources. Her book, The Complete Guide to Service Learning, has really become an invaluable resource in my own daily practice. Kathy, thank you for joining us today. In today's episode, let's explore how technology has played a role in the work that you do as a service learning specialist. You hit on a point um, that I think is very true, Alex, is that once I go to a school and I'm doing work, they find that while I do focus on service learning as one of the aspects, I'm really just talking about really good education and how to truly involve students as partners in learning so that they are really and truly engaged. Showing up is not enough. Uh, We need to go beyond just showing up to have really true, meaningful engagement of students. And people have asked me for years, how do you motivate students? And I realize you can't motivate anyone. Motivation comes from within. And if you engage a person, there's a greater likelihood they will choose to be motivated. And what I found is um, the work of service learning is really about helping young people make connections. Mm. Make connections with, with what they're learning and how it applies in the real world. How it applies in the school to make improvements in their local community in a global context. And technology is a great part of that. Of course, you can do all these things without technology. Technology can enlarge the way we can connect around the world or even locally, or we can produce materials and products that we can share through technology. So technology has always been a piece and a part where you can really use it as a vehicle in all of the five stages of service learning. And that's something else I think is critical for your listeners to understand. When I think about service learning, there's five key stages. Students investigate an issue, and in the way we investigate, they really learn about an authentic need. Once I've identified and really authenticated that need, then they move to preparation, and they go deeper with their inquiry and really explore it from many different angles, often with partners or experts. And then they decide what kind of action would be the best action to take either direct service where they're working directly with people, the planet or animals, indirect service, which can be something more remote or something they're not involved in exactly on the spot of of delivery. They can do um, advocacy work, which is kind of giving voice to a cause, or they can do deeper research that helps other people move forward. Along the way, they reflect, and then they demonstrate and share their results of both their learning and their service. So service learning has those five stages, and within that, there's ample opportunities to use technology in many forms. The way you describe the inquiry process of service learning sounds a lot like other subjects like individuals and societies or design. Um, But I also, I really like the way that you talked about motivation versus engagement. It reminds me a lot of John Hattie's work in which he found um, that one of technology's strengths in the classroom is actually engagement. But what would you say is the reason why service learning matters? If you were anything like me as a student when you were in school, I'm going to bet every now and then you were looking out the window wondering, why am I learning this? Well, there's, I think that's one of the reasons service learning matters is we have a big question. Why are we learning this? Why, why am I learning this? I know I'm learning it for a grade. I'm learning it to please my parents. I'm learning this so I can go to college. But for what purpose? What is the point? And a lot of young people and a lot of teachers wonder, why am I teaching this? I mean, there's a, there's a 
we're looking for the purpose or the why, the, the, that internal motivator to get us up in the morning and excited about being in that classroom. And service learning moves the point of learning from just getting a good grade or making other people happy to doing something that's personally satisfying where we can see that what we've learned can actually move the needle in something. It can actually make something better for another person. And in doing so, there are always, when done well, reciprocal consequences. We all benefit from it. It's not, not just one person is thriving from this, but we all benefit. Now, I do have to just backtrack for a second because I said doing something well. And we all know we can take many things and kind of screw it up or do things that could even be harmful. And if students approach service learning or a school approaches service learning as we're going in to save people or we're going in because we're better than or we have more than or we can, mm. we can do to people, that's not the right angle. We always want to go in with to do with other people, to understand them. And we always, that gives dignity to other people. And there was a, a time I, I might have even contributed to doing something improper when I think in the early days we, we did service learning almost with a deficit model. We'd go in to fix things and because we knew more or we d- could do better. And that's long gone, I hope, from anything I do. We want to go in with an asset-based model and learn from other people who they are and what they value and how we can partner together. So service learning can be done with assets, looking through an asset lens. But what I've learned in my travels over these last years is I've yet to meet a student at any school, international, independent, or public in the United States or public abroad, because I work in public education at other places in the world. I've never yet met a student who knows the word assets. It's fascinating to me. Hmm. It's not a word we use a lot. Uh, And so I think we really owe it to ourselves and to our students to make sure anytime we do service learning, we create it through an asset-based model where we we make sure we're all being elevated and there are reciprocal benefits for everybody. Hmm. Thank you for that. Do you think you could take a moment and explain a little bit more about what you meant by deficit model? Yes. I think if we go in and um, I can give you an example if I read a student's reflection ha- after they went to, let's say, a very poor community, whether it's in Korea or China or Cambodia or New York City, and after spending time in that community, maybe even doing what they think is good service learning, their reflection is, oh, I'm so glad I don't live in that poverty. I'm so glad <laughs> my life is different. Wow. Or I gave that child the happiest day of their life. Now, that may sound like would any kid really say that? And I, I'm here to say, yes, I've read those kind of reflections. So if students are walking in and that's the outcome, we have, we've given them a deficit-based model. But if they walk in and come out of an experience and said, say, in that same community, say, I met this fellow who could fix anything with duct tape. I mean, I've seen people understand how to use natural resources in a way that have no waste at all. Or that child have had an exuberance of life, even though she's in a situation that offers many challenges and struggles I never have to experience in my life. So if we we look at people as every person is a person of value and every person has something to offer, every community has their culture, their their resources, their values, their caring for each other. We look at people differently than if we walk in thinking we're better. It's something, especially in schools that have privilege and opportunity, I think it's really important we clarify those distinctions so that young people can really see how to do well and how to be better human beings on this complex planet we live on right now. Hmm. 
It sounds like you're describing international mindedness. Do you think that service learning is intertwined with international mindedness? And if so, how? A hundred percent. I think they're all, there's a high intersection there. Um, I was very fortunate to work with the IB for quite a few years in many different roles, especially helping with the, the CAS guide, the Creativity Activity Service Guide that's used in the diploma program. And we talked a lot about international mindedness and how we we wanted even to discourage students from thinking that they the best service learning was getting on a plane and going somewhere else outside of their own community to spend like five days doing something and then coming back and thinking they, they did good somewhere else rather than doing something in their own community because all the issues that exist in other places are very often found in our own backyards. When students work more locally, they can connect what they're doing to something someplace else. Um, but when they work locally, they can have ongoing relationships. And those connections that really matter, they can see things change over time. They grow and learn over time more deeply than from a remote, isolated experience that really doesn't have that kind of depth, I would say. There are exceptions to that, and I've seen uh, distance trips go very well, especially when they're done repeatedly over time or when good local connections are made. It really sounds like you're saying that service learning matters, and it, it provides an opportunity for education to be authentic. Absolutely, and it can fit into most every academic situation. Still too often, people look at service learning as an add-on, something we can do after we've done our serious learning. But there's ample evidence now that it can be used within a social studies unit on, on homelessness or poverty, or it can be used as students are looking at issues related to chemistry and what chemicals that are really affecting the environment around us. I've yet to find a topic, except calculus, because I still don't understand calculus <laughs> very well. But um, I've yet to find a topic that we can't begin to explore where the possibilities look at what's the practical aspect of that study or what's something that would help students go deeper with their thinking, how we could really find out what their true questions are so that learning can surround their questions and they can really learn depth of knowledge. One of the areas that I'm very happy I've contributed to in learning in general and service learning in specific is illuminating a, a form of research that's called the MISO method. Um, you might remember that from our workshop. We use it in my students, class. <laughs> see, it worked. We really like that. <laughs> and that's yeah. where, rather than just Googling it, we use media, interviews, survey, and observation. And just that, just that alone is a game changer for students. Um, and I've had students say, and I can't, I can't even count how often, wow, can we do this in all our classes? Because they get more engaged. You know, my whole thing is when I do a workshop or when I model learning is that we want 100% engagement 100% of the time. And whether it's using MISO or using technology that can offer that, we want students to be present, connected to, to who they are and who the people are around them, and to extend that connection. And technology and connecting with service learning is a way to make that happen because their learning really makes a difference. It mm. really does move something forward. Mm. Can you give an example of a time that you had seen technology help people to make that kind of connection? Yes, I'm going to share one of the earliest ones that I heard of, which was absolutely fabulous. So um, I was working at the school in Prague, uh, International School of Prague, which is a wonderful school. And uh, they had a French teacher there who knew someone at a, 
who was teaching French at Eunice, the United Nations International School. There are two campuses. This one was the one in Hanoi. That's mm-hmm. another school I visited and is quite wonderful. And these French teachers decided that their students might learn better and be more interested if they were learning and teaching each other. So they used technology, computers, for distance learning where they could teach each other about, they could speak French and they could learn vocabulary and they would learn about living in Hanoi and learning in Prague. It was just such a great example. One of the students who was in Hanoi made a video looking at poverty in Hanoi. And so that was done in French, as I recall. And so they used that with the students in Prague as one of the teaching tools. The students in Prague were so motivated by the students' video in Hanoi that they started looking at poverty in, in Prague, and they each did service learning experiences there where they could then share them with each other. Wow. So that sounds incredible. I, exactly. I know. And what was so fun was I was speaking at a conference in Lisbon, or outside of Lisbon, and telling the story to a group of students. At, at, they were all coming from parts of Europe to do something about global uh, studies and global service learning. And one of the girls who was sitting in the back of the room jumped up and shouted, I was in the Hanoi group. I was one of the students. <laughs> <laughs> And she told how meaningful it was to her and how everyone was excited. It was that idea of connecting with people, learning from and with others, and then seeing how together they could learn how to make uh, a contribution in their communities. So that's one example. And it was a while ago, but boy, that stuck with me for a very long time because it was so real and authentic and doable. And kids love to connect with other people. So there you have it. That's one it sounds like the way you're describing service learning, it's it's almost like a platform the way that technology is a platform that helps students to make authentic connections in their own educations. Right. And what you see in this example, and it's true in every, every meaningful service learning experience, is youth have a voice and they have a choice at some element of these. And the more a teacher gets comfortable with the service learning process, what I find is they let go more and more and give students the opportunity to do more and more themselves. I find that in the very beginning, a teacher will be t- might be timid and kind of just parcel out youth voice just a little more cautiously. But when they see that students do have ideas, they've got skills, and they've got, some, they've got the heart for this. Um, then they really let them go wild. Um, you know, one of my premises is that the more we underdirect with students, the more capability we give for them to really blossom and and see what's on their mind or their visions for things. And service learning is a vehicle to really see what students will come up with. And it might be different from what a teacher would like to have happen. I've seen this happen also. The teacher says, "Well, I think we should do this," and the students say, "No, let's do this." And the students, when when you have a teacher who's willing to go with the students, it's just phenomenal because the students. The more students can drive something, I know you would agree, the, the outcomes can often mean it. And it doesn't mean it always works. But students, when something doesn't work, will learn persistence, resilience, and they'll come back even stronger the next go-round. So are you saying that the reasons why students participate in service learning is to learn things like, like persistence and resilience? Or are there other reasons why students should participate in, in service learning? Like, what's the academic value here? It's a great question. So the way I approach looking at this idea of assessment and what's the academic value is I always break it down into three categories. There are always knowledge points I want my students to learn, you know, whether it's 
vocabulary or about history. Like they need to read this, not like in the service learning p- paradigm I use, where you move from investigation to preparation, it all revolves around the curriculum. And if I have content students need to know about history or about social studies or about equations or about complex, you know, chemicals and how they combine or whatever content I need students to learn, whether it's my benchmark standards, however you want want to frame it, those must be part of this process. People have asked me, how long should a service learning experience last? And I have a very easy answer. As long as students go through the five stages and they meet the academic markers that are necessary in this unit of study. So we're not leaving academics behind. Students are still learning the knowledge. They're also gaining palpable skills, communication skills. But we might look at which communication skills, like asking questions, asking deeper questions, interviewing skills. Um, they might be getting the skills of organization or how to sequence or cause and effect. And then we also want to look at dispositions. Are they moving more towards an international mindedness? Are they getting a mindset that has is more open to other people's perspective? Can they negotiate or exchange ideas effectively? and realize it's not always my idea that's going to be the one, but I can still support someone else's ideas. So I break it down into those three categories, knowledge, skills, and dispositions. And I've done a lot of work on evaluation and assessment using that model, and it's very effective with teachers. Um, And in a service learning context and in a non-service learning context, that same design has been very effective with educators. Mm -hmm. And I've used that K-12 and with higher education. Okay, so the academic value behind service learning is about knowledge, skills, and dispositions, right? Um, So my follow-up question is, why do we call service learning service learning? This conversation so far um, has led us to understand that service learning is about authentic learning, about working with people. It's about engagement. So I'm just kind of wondering why do we call it service learning? Why don't we call it something like community learning or authentic learning? Could you could you weigh in on this this nomenclature here? Well, I have a vision. I've been doing this for quite some time. In my preferred world, it would just be good education. <laughs> it wouldn't even need it. Yeah, yeah. This is just how we would teach and learn. Yeah. However, that's not. We're not there yet. Yeah. Authentic learning may not involve students taking action. We've talked more about investigation preparation, but it leads to taking action. And the action is is fourfold. Um, Like in a typical classroom, students study something about World War II or they uh, learn about the, the geography of Korea or the political environment that they're in, any subject they're learning. At the end, the action... Um, it might be taking a test or writing a report or giving a presentation. In service learning, you might do those things, but you're also taking action in a form that does look like service, direct, indirect advocacy or research. And because that is part of this true service learning equation, it can't just be authentic learning. You could do authentic learning and never take action. And this is one of the um, people ask me often, how is it different from project-based learning, which I think is wonderful in schools, but project-based learning also does not always end up in doing something that's authentic service. And project-based learning may not, depending on how it's done, always involve youth voice and choice. It might be very teacher-directed. 
There's nothing wrong with this at all. It's just not the same. And design thinking has some wonderful elements to it. However, it often can stay within the classroom context and not actually do something that becomes taking action. So because service learning has an action element, it moves beyond just authentic learning to service learning. At some point, I might be willing to change the name, but not yet. (laughs) (laughs) But I sometimes get in discussions with people. They offer different things. Um, I've seen it called community service learning. I've I've had lots of names in my hip pocket. People have called it. But for me, it still works because there's a pedagogy that supports this. I have a book written in Croatian that service learning is taught in the university there. It's all over South America um, with its hub being... um, in Argentina. Uh, it's, it's in so many parts of the globe. When I went to China the first time, it was to work with public schools in education, and they've actually translated my book into Chinese. So um, it's really about good education, and it's, it's just a wonderful pedagogy that pe- once people understand it, they realize it's not an add-on, it's something I can do. And I've teachers say to me, how would I teach if I didn't do service learning? Mm. I love that sentence. Mm. How would I teach if I didn't teach service learning? Teach huh. through service learning. Teach hmm. with that as part of my pedagogy. Teach through. Because they realize, yeah, because service learning is a, it's like a, a driver. It's like a vehicle that moves our learning forward. I've had teachers say to me, well, we're going to do this and service learning. I said, well, let's look at how service learning can actually be the vehicle that moves that learning hmm. forward where you're building these knowledge, skills, and dispositions, and the outcomes are much richer. And when they see that, Um, And I love, love, love doing curriculum design with teachers because it really can expand how they think about learning. And it always gets gets Mm -hmm. them excited. I've been very fortunate to work with many teachers who said, I was ready to leave the profession and now I'm revitalized to do more. Wow. So actually... Uh, service learning was a vehicle not just for the students, but also for the teachers Mm -hmm. that made the whole experience meaningful for all parties. Is there a central tenet to service learning? Like the idea that uh, service learning is meant to leave the planet better than we found it, and we're supposed to have a positive impact on the environment, or is there some sort of embedded assumption here behind service learning? Absolutely, 100%. So I've got, I always have a couple different agendas when I'm working in service learning. Uh, One is to improve how we teach, to improve how we learn, and how to use that to make a positive contribution um, in some manner. And also to give young people this framework so that if they see any problem, so let's say it's summertime or they're on spring holiday or they're graduated school and now they're in university or in the their career, and they see a problem, well, they can investigate it, they can prepare, and they can take action. Along the way, they reflect about it, and then they demonstrate and share that story. So it's a framework you could use. If they're working at Apple, for example, um, they might have a problem to solve, and if so, they can use the same five stages to solve any problem. So it's it's a methodology that students can own and use in their own lives, and it's a pedagogy that teachers can use to deepen and strengthen how learning happens. But the one the one caveat I will share with you is that if teachers don't like surprises, they shouldn't do service learning. Hmm. Because there's always a surprise. It's always has some element of un- unpredictability because it's real and like you said before it's authentic. And you know, we think we're going in one direction but something happens and it pulls us in another direction and we have to decide at that moment as teachers do we want to go there or do we have to say oh no I can't do that. I it's not on my 
less, you know, my planner. This is an opportunity for teachers to get reengaged with something authentic and real. And that, I think, is what excites teachers once they've done it. They're ready, again, to let go of the control. And I think we do spend, have too much energy that goes towards controlling and managing kids. And I don't think that's the right language for schools. I think instead of controlling and managing, we should be engaging and inspiring. And when we do that, young people are always there to respond. And service learning um, gets kids really curious. And that, to me, is what we really need, is a rebirth of curiosity. Mm-hmm. of asking deeper and deeper questions and then finding out how to find out. Yeah. I really like what you had to say there about a rebirth of curiosity and that service learning could perhaps be that spark for kids. Um, I also really was picking up on that idea that you were saying earlier about how we have to be flexible if we want to participate in service learning because it's really taking it's really taking learning outside of the school building and you know engaging with the rest of the world outside so we never really know exactly what's going to happen uh, and the teachers who are less flexible should still do it because they're going to have much more fun with learning and they're going to find ways that they can still adapt it even if they do it in smaller steps or smaller doses mm-hmm. they can still find that it will work for them okay so everybody can still participate in service learning. It just depends on their own comfort level and how how flexible they can be. Um, Is service learning just for older kids, though? Is this something that only um, a high school kid would be able to do? You know, we're talking about um, homelessness and investigating um, with people that are actually homeless. And I, I just can't really imagine a student who is in elementary school doing these sorts of things. So what would that look like for a younger kid? Oh, I'm so glad you raised that question. So I was really fortunate last fall to be in Shanghai. I love Shanghai. I love everywhere I go, I really do. But Shanghai, I've been to quite a few times. And I'm grateful for that. And I was at um, Concordia. Mm -hmm. Yes, it was Concordia uh, International School in Shanghai. And I think it was my fourth visit there. And they were telling me about a story. And I was sharing this story at a parent talk. I was talking to a group of parents and I was using a PowerPoint, and I had not been part of the story, but the teacher had started doing service learning in a fourth grade class. And they were learning about immigration and why people moved from place to place. And they were using the MISO method that we talked about earlier. And so the students decided they wanted to interview people in the community, not their school community, but in their neighborhood, and go out and find people they could interview and ask them why it is they either moved, you know, moved to this community. This is a community in Shanghai that has a lot of expats, um, people who've moved there for different reasons. Uh, so what they did was they created teams. And one student would have a, a recording device, one would be an, and one would be an interviewer. And they had students of different language abilities, so that if they were speaking to someone in different languages, they had a good opportunity that they could meet the needs of the person they were interviewing. So they used technology and they did per- person-on-the-street interviews. These are fourth graders. Wow, fourth graders doing that. That's incredible. Uh, these are fourth graders doing this. And then they took the data they collected from the people they interviewed about why they moved to Shanghai or why they moved within China to end up in Shanghai. And they took this information and using you know, all these different devi- you know, these different platforms you know about and I don't know about, they made a video of it. And they gave it to the development office and admissions office at the school, and they were using it as part of an admissions video. Wow. 
fourth graders. Okay, so here's the best part of the story. I'm presenting this story. I'm telling this to parents. And obviously, I'm a third party in here. I didn't do it. I'm not the teacher. So I was describing it. At this talk I was giving, there happened to be two young boys standing on the side near, the, near one of the parents. They'd apparently come with the parents the parent night. And when I started talking about this example, one of the boys perked up and started looking really, really interested. And I took a leap and I said, were you part of that class? Now, he was now a fifth grader. He said, yes, I was in that fourth grade class last year. Mm. I said, would you come up and tell us about this experience? Now, very often, we know what it's like when students do presentations. They're very well prepped and well prepared. This boy was on the spot. I, I just said, would you come up? He took the microphone, and so articulately, he described how nervous he'd been before he did this, how they, all the students were nervous, and how they really worked on their interviewing skills, how much confidence he gained by doing these kind of interviews, and all this. So we've got knowledge on how to make these videos, how to develop interview questions, how this deepens what their understanding of immigration it was a much rich, richer unit. But the knowledge, skills, and dispositions he's learning are so so clear. And after he spoke for a few minutes, he, there was another boy who was standing next to him. I said, well, would your friend like to tell us about the video you made? And this fifth grader just seamlessly handed him the, the microphone and called him by name and said, would you like to share about the video? Well, it was, it was the best part of the presentation, no doubt, that these kids could speak authentically. Now, might they have been able to do that without this experience? Maybe. But you could see the direct link between them using technology, going out into the community, interviewing people, making videos, sharing that with other people to give them the confidence to stand in front of a room full of parents and describe their experience. So yes, young kids, I can tell you examples of kids as young as kindergarten, first grade, all the way up, who involve themselves in service learning and likely use technology. I know of uh, kindergarten students in Prague who did a whole unit on food they started a bakery in their schools, and each kindergarten class had their own bakery. They did advertisements that went through the school, and they made a video about their project and wrote a cookbook. So these students in kindergarten were using uh, technology better mm -hmm. than I could. Wow. Do you think that if uh, the students hadn't been using modern technologies like uh, the ones you had just mentioned, let's say they were using paper and pencil, do you think that the learning would have been as effective? You know, perhaps, but I think having the use of technology gives them just a whole new set of skills and tools that are a part of their lives. You know, they're digital natives. I'm a digital immigrant. So as digital natives, we want to, you know, increase that opportunity. But I also want to say there are many other ways technology can enhance a service learning experience. Um, also at Concordia, the students were, again, based in Shanghai, connecting with someone in Nepal to learn about the water resources there. So they were able to Skype an expert who worked for an NGO in Nepal into their classroom to learn directly on what what they were trying to find out rather than Googling it or just trying to go to a, you know, some kind of platform. It's so much richer to bring someone into your life. Hmm. The same way if students in South Korea wanted to know more about Egypt, how much better would it be to connect with international students in Cairo and saying, could you make a video, could you take us on a walking tour of this area and show us what it's like. I mean, we, we can use technology to bring the world together. Another example is um, a colleague of mine, Barbara Cervone, and I, uh, based on a book she wrote with students in Tanzania, started a program called In Our Village, which you can access at um, inourvillage.org. And 
on that web page, you can go through a portal to learn about In Our Global Village. The first In Our Village is about students in Tanzania writing a book about their lives. And that was paper and pen. But what we then did was we encouraged students all around the world to write books about their lives. We have a digital platform where students can read these e-books that students have written in India, in Japan, in Los Angeles. Um, so they can use the digital platform to share books so students are learning from and with each other rather than just in tools that teachers and adults create. Mm -hmm. So there's just such a myriad of ways that we can engage in technology to learn from each other, to share information, and to really feel closer so that we replace this idea of others and them with people mm -hmm. we know and people we can interface yeah. with. So technology and service learning are the most effective when we're bringing people together. And it sounded like one of the effective ways that technology could be used in service learning is when um, there's an issue perhaps with safety and uh, with children wandering around on the street, we could instead have them connect with people uh, virtually through some sort of platform with a, a video call. Or it also could bring people together when distance is an issue. Um, I think you gave an example earlier of Korea and Cairo. So students would be able to communicate online when they wouldn't necessarily have that opportunity to meet face to face. You know, in the there was a time, and this was quite a while ago, where I connected students in Oklahoma who were part of the Cherokee Nation, an indigenous population in the states, with students in Los Angeles, and they either used the mail, we've heard of that, it's called the post office, or they use fax to communicate because it, we didn't have the internet. So, you know, the thing I do wish we weren't losing is I still think letter writing is great and students should still know how to write a letter. Um, but maybe I'm a little old school for that. Um, however, I do think there's many ways that we can use all these different platforms. Of and, and the thing is that you said something earlier that's very true. The students often know platforms and ways to connect that we don't know about and that they can use it more inventively, whether it's, you know, social media. I had some students um, who were doing some fundraising, and they, I think this was in Zagreb, in Croatia, and they developed this whole process to, to support a school in Nepal, and they did a whole fundraising effort, and some students and teachers had gone there. They had a really strong relationship. It wasn't just, they were just, weren't just phoning it in. They were learning about Nepal. They were learning about the school. They were connecting with students, and they actually helped provide technology to them so they could have greater interface. And these students use social media so well. And I think that's another part. That's, that's an, area, an area that students use all the time. And unless we show them how they can use it for the social good, they might use it in ways that could be harmful. So I think it's very important we coach students and help them learn all these mm -hmm. different avenues of technology and see how they can really make them work in ways that, yeah. that elevate people rather than cause harm. Mm -hmm. One of the, the main points that you just made was that um, where, where technology and service learning intersect with one another is that we have to learn the right way of using the tool. We can't just hand the kid a computer or the internet and just say, okay, off you go. These are 21st century skills that are essential in making education relevant and meaningful to children. Um, it, 
in other words, we, we have to teach them how, how to use a computer the right way and how to behave online safely. You know, media literacy and, and digital literacy, all these, these kind of modern literacies that we hear about. Would you say that that's kind of the point you're trying to make there? Absolutely, because we want them to learn how to use these tools for the social good, but also to be discriminating, to be able to understand when they find something that's, you know, it's this whole, whether it's true, whether it's fact, whether it's how we can really be be more attuned to the world around us. You know, students are going to be inundated with technology and with information from technology, and they're going to have to learn how to discriminate between what is accurate and what isn't, uh, what is worth learning more about, and what are just falsehoods. So students, we have to help students learn how to just work in all these different modalities and become just better people through it, you know, I mean, so that we're really thinking well about each other. You know, we don't live in isolation. We live in community constantly. So I think that's really important. And and it starts when kids are younger and we have to revisit it again in middle school. You know, we know that kids can use, we talked about how technology can be used in ways that harm. And we've seen that with with cyberbullying and with other kinds of areas uh, that people are familiar with. And we want to equip young people to know what to do in those circumstances so they can interrupt it and they can help young people learn that that's, we don't need to do this kind of stuff. We really, we're better than that. And, you know, we just can put that aside and learn how to be supportive. And I don't mean to oversimplify this because I know that it can be more complex, but that's just part of what we have to do every day with students. It sounds like you're saying there that almost the purpose of education is to make better people. Would you agree or disagree with that sort of statement? You know, I've thought about that a lot, and I think the, I'm going to just go even a little more specific. Education should make better neighbors. Mm. We want people to grow up to be a neighbor we want to live next door to. Yeah, you know, someone who's looking out for each other, someone we want to get to know, someone we know contributes, who mm-hmm. participates, um, who will vote, yeah. who will not just vote because somebody's tall or short, but because <laughs> somebody's going to do well for other people. So I really want young people to think about who they want to be in terms of a context of society. You know, we talk about literacy, and that's been a word we talk about all the time. Very often people think literacy means to read and write, write and compute. But for me, there are literacies like civic literacy, tech mm. literacy, social literacy, emotional literacies. Those are the literacies that our education mm. systems need to support in this larger ecosystem. Yeah, totally. So for me, I want students to have that civic literacy. I want them to have environmental literacy. But these literacies aren't isolated. Tech literacy can support a lot of this world. Yeah. So it's what they're going to be in. Um, and we were speaking earlier before we were recording. It's about right now in the world, there's a lot going on with some students who are not used to doing online learning, mm-hmm. put in that position because of what's going on in our environment with um, coronavirus and uh, COVID-19. And how can we, again, reinvent how we use technology to support students in these situations and also still encourage them to think outside themselves and to think about what they can mm-hmm. do to contribute in a larger context. Mm. So are there any opportunities right now for students to step outside of their own comfort zones and to, you know, think outside of themselves? Yes. 
I'm so excited you asked that question. I've just been <laughs> waiting for us to have that. <laughs> I'm so excited. So um, I've, of course, started thinking about this right away as this whole envir- this whole situation started uh, coming up. And uh, then a friend of mine who I've known through service learning, Ginger Habel, who, who teaches in um, Shanghai American School, sent me a note. And she's she's left Shanghai right now. She's elsewhere. But some students, and, and of course, in China, everyone's learning remotely. We all know that. So a student, and I believe a high school student, wrote a piece of music that honors the Wuhan uh, professionals and caregivers who are really responding to this unreal challenge that, that they have. And they really wanted to create a recording of this. However, as you know, they could not go back to school or meet with the six friends or other musicians that they had in mind. So they used technology. So each student, he made, I think it's, I believe it's a boy who started it and wrote the music, made one soundtrack, passed it on to another student with technology. That student made and added other layers and they just kept adding different tracks, including a vocalist. And they have this exquisite song and I just posted a blog on my website, so I'll have to let your listeners know how to go there and find the link so they can listen to this amazing piece of music and see the visuals. They have a video of all the students working simultaneously. It's absolutely a, a perfect example of what they're doing, and they're trying to raise awareness and raise funds to help people in Wuhan. There's an, another example of students at um, Dulwich College, uh, which is also in in Shanghai, where uh, some of the students wanted to do a walkathon, and they're asking people wherever they are in the world to walk, and then through technology donate funds again to help others who are who are struggling wow. in this issue, and and then there are other students who've been making postcards and sending them. Um, however, I was thinking of another few ways that students could be helpful, even for your school community. I heard through um, uh, communicating with one of your administrators that some parents are struggling a bit with how to keep their young children especially engaged with learning when they're outside the school environment. I thought, oh, is this a fabulous opportunity? What if we partnered middle school students with some of the younger children and they could read to them and help them do cross-age tutoring, which would be so much fun for the elementary school students to have a middle school buddy or a high school buddy to create these cross-age partnerships for students to learn. Or we're gonna, I'm going to lead you in some exercises today, and we're going to be really looking at how we can keep our body and teach some PE classes so that everybody's engaged and everybody's excited to have these partnerships. And it could go both ways. An elementary school student to, could put together a lesson or something they want a high school student to learn or teach them. But using technology to bring people together, maybe who even didn't know each other before, these two students were in the same school but don't hang out, you know, a sixth grader and a second grader. And now we have some meaningful partnerships. So I think we can look at ways that we can engage everyone in thoughtful way, thoughtful participation uh, to address issues that are going on in the world, again, using technology when we can't be face-to-face. Uh, students can make publicate. Actually, one school I was talking, actually your school, was talking with one of the teachers and helping her construct an eighth-grade curriculum they want to implement uh, in this distance learning. One idea is for students to write an ABC book about poverty. So different students would be working on different pages and partnerships, and then they would use technology to pull this together into one publication. So I think we, we can think creatively about how we can continue to work and help people we know and extend our help to people we don't know and our relationships. 
um, I use the word help and it's a word I'm not even using that often because it's, it's again, always emphasizing this reciprocal relationship we want to create and providing and exchanging with others. I'm very excited now that I've put out this blog that I'm hoping other educators around the world will keep telling me and sharing some of the ways they're doing service learning in distance learning so I can keep promoting these ideas Mm -hmm. and we can keep making sure that we're thinking well and still taking action. Yeah. So we'll make sure to put links to all of the different things we've been talking about today in this podcast in the description. So listeners, you can check that out. Uh, So we'll make sure to have a link to your website, cbkassociates.com, as well as this great distance service learning example from the folks over at Shanghai American. I'm so excited by it. Um, and again, it's just good people you know, thinking well and doing good work. And all the educators out there always want to do their best by students. That's something I see wherever I go. It doesn't even matter where, what part of the world I'm in. And this is a unique opportunity. Uh, I wish I could say that this opportunity was going to vanish very quickly. I don't have a crystal ball. I don't know. But I do hope that people stay well, stay safe, and stay connected. Yeah. Uh, thanks for that. Stay well, stay safe, and stay connected. I like that. Catherine Berger K, it's been a real pleasure having you on the podcast today. Thanks for taking some time out of your hectic travel schedule. I know you're in high demand, so it's been a real pleasure having you. Alex, it's really been a joy. Thank you so much for coming. Make sure you subscribe to the EdTech Lens podcast wherever fine podcasts are sold, including Spotify, Anchor.fm, and Apple Podcasts.